If the Bible is a story, how does the story actually work? This is the Bible Reset Podcast brought to you by the Institute for Bible Reading. Welcome to the show. I'm Alex Goodwin, joined by Paul Caminiti and Glenn Powell. We're in the middle of our series on the Bible's story, and last week we unpacked the idea that the Bible isn't primarily a how-to textbook or a, a guide for life or a loose connection of moral stories, but instead we made the argument that the Bible is primarily a unified story, and it's a story that's meant to shape our understanding of the world and our lives within it. Today we're going to do our best to attempt to summarize what the story actually looks like. You know, a lot of tourists that go to New York City like to go to the tallest building they can find, partly because it's a really cool view, but also because it helps them get a bird's eye orientation of the city. So you can go up to the top of a tall building and get a mental map of where things like Times Square, Brooklyn Bridge, Yankee Stadium, how they all fit into the the big picture of what New York City looks like. So that's what we're going to try to do today. We know that we'll probably inevitably not do justice to to the depth of any any one part of the Bible story, but really our goal here is to get a, a bird's eye view. There are lots of um, models or frameworks, I guess you could say, for the Bible story, but we've in particular been taken by this six-act drama model. So it, it presents the storyline of the Bible overall as a six-act play, if you will, a drama that's true to life and that we're invited into. So that's what we'll structure our discussion today as we attempt to summarize and comment on the content and the meaning of each of those six acts. So let's jump in. Uh, the Bible yeah. story, Act One, is the world's genesis. And uh, the drama begins with the familiar opening line, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And we're not told who God is, we're not told where he comes from. He seemingly comes out of nowhere and he begins creating things out of nothing. And, you know, for the uh, first hearers of the story, and really for us today too, right out of the chute, we sense that this is no ordinary drama. This is no ordinary story. Uh, the second line of the drama kind of sets things up. We're introduced to a world that's described as formless and void, it's chaotic and, and, and empty. And in this opening act, you know, God steps onto the stage and he steps into time. And in the first, what's designated as three days, he addresses the earth's formlessness. And so he begins making structural changes, like separating the land from the water and, and the night from the day. And then he addresses the second problem, which is that the earth is void. And so he begins filling the void with, you know, wondrous flora and fauna, and then all varieties of living creatures in both, you know, the sky and in the water, and then, of course, on the land. And this, this opening snapshot is a, a locale that's oftentimes been called the Garden of Eden, and as one imaginative writer recently said, perhaps more like a majestic national park. But we have to be clear, and this is made clear early in the story, that the crowning jewel of this explosion of creative genius is, is the humans. 
and they are represented as being unique from all the other creatures. They are made in the image of the creator, and they are designated to be co-creators and co-collaborators with God to take this raw new world and grow it into a, a paradise. And there's another kind of stunning um, revelation, too, in the opening act. The creator makes his intentions clear that he plans to make this new world his home. And when the world was remade, set up to flourish, the Bible tells us that on the seventh day, God rested from all of his work. And in the ancient world, when deities rested, it meant that they took up residence in their temples. So we see that this newly created earth is actually the place of all places that the creator would come to live. I think it's uh, fair to say that the first hearers of this story would have been stunned by the world's genesis. It's, you know, cosmology, if you will, because in their worldview, um, it was dominated by a belief in a plethora of gods. They would have been stunned by a narrative that attributed the world's beginning to one God who, you know, singularly creates and then reigns over this world. And the early composers of Genesis go out of their way to make that point. They don't use the common Hebrew words for sun and moon. Instead, they refer to the sun as simply the greater light and the moon as the lesser light. And, and the reason they do that is because in the ancient world, the sun and moon were worshipped as gods. And the, the, early, the early writers wanted us to be clear that that was not the case. I think um, the early hearers would have been stunned by the dignity of human beings who in the ancient world were considered to be nothing more than you know, the slaves of the gods. And I think they would have been stunned that this God intends to make this earth his home. Again, in the ancient world, the gods live in the heavens and uh, the miserable human beings lived below. So guys, you know, some commentary on this. In some ways, this opening act is kind of an argumentative story. Hmm. Um, it's challenging the conventional wisdom of the day. And, uh, you know, it begins by telling us even, you know, the good news is reserved for later on, you know, in the actual narrative, this begins as a good news story. Yeah, Paul, thanks for that. That's super interesting. And, you know, I think not to get into too much uh, hot water here, because I know this can be a hotly contested topic. But, you know, today we're we're on the other side of the scientific scientific revolution, industrial revolution, that sort of thing. We're super interested in how things work, how things came to be kind of the the science or the mechanics of things. And I think it's important to just argue, I guess, that that the opening story of the Bible is more concerned with who questions and why questions than how questions. So I think that's just something to, to pay attention to as we read. Yeah, it's hard to do. I think as modern readers, we just naturally bring our questions to the text. And this is just an important reminder that we need to start with the Bible's questions uh, as the it's doing its own thing, first of all, before we we kind of impose our questions or frameworks on it. So that's, that's a great point. Paul, I love what you said about it being an argumentative story. So if, if we say that the Bible is a story, I think we have to say that it was a counter narrative to the standard pagan stories of the day about the universe, about the gods, about people's place within it, 
So it was speaking to its own time, first of all, and saying the world is not what you think it is, and God is not who you think he is, and humans are different. So it was it was making its own point in its own environment. Yeah, and maybe in summary, you know, we should stress the importance that this is the beginning of the story. This is the genesis. And oftentimes we begin telling the story, sadly, oftentimes to people who are who are struggling to decide if they want to become Christians, we don't start here. We start with their sinfulness. You know, all have sinned and come short of the glory mm -hmm. of God. And it's important, I think, that we begin with this story, which is a vision of God's intention for a paradise, which will ultimately be accomplished by the story's end. Yeah. Yeah. So, so act two is, is what we're calling humanity's rebellion. And it starts off just like you said, Paul, uh, we, we get a glimpse into what's God, what God's intention was for this created world. Um, and it was to create a place of beauty and to dwell in it with his image bearers in this, this state of shalom. And, you know, oftentimes we, we translate shalom as just peace, but it really has this super deep meaning in, in Hebrew that can mean lots of things. But I think in this situation, it's kind of a, a rich, integrated relational wholeness. So humans are in shalom with God. They're in shalom with each other. They're in shalom within themselves and with the very created order and the land and the, the flora and fauna itself. Of course, we see that that doesn't last, and we're quickly introduced to the mystery of evil in the world. You know, it's a, it's a mystery that we live with to to this day. We don't we don't know how it got here, and the Bible's not super interested in telling us how it got here, but but it is, and it 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 did get here, and um, you know, it tempts humans to rebel against God's wisdom, and uh, and pursue autonomy apart from God. And, and when humans rebel, that, that shalom that existed in the beginning is actually broken in every direction. It's broken with God, with each other, within themselves, and with the land itself. So, so as soon as it happens, they're aware of their, na their nakedness and they hide in shame. They point the finger at each other. God casts them out of his presence because um, it's just not possible anymore for him to dwell with them as he intended. And, you know, in the process of that, he says... Whereas life used to just kind of spring forth from the land, now cultivating the soil will be hard. It'll be difficult and it'll work against you. So this, this peace and this related wholeness kind of breaks in every direction. But even in the midst of the catastrophe, God shows that he has a, a bit of a plan going forward. He vows that he's not going to abandon his purposes here. And we see Christ right here at the beginning. You know, he says the seed of the woman will crush the, the rebellious serpent. So if, if you'll allow me to hop up on my soapbox here for a minute, and I'm <laughs> curious what you guys think about this. This act a lot of times is called just the fall, which I think is a totally valid word to use for this, this portion of the story. But I guess I wonder sometimes if fall is just too passive of a word. like. I, I I just love Glenn how you use the word rebellion oftentimes because I feel I feel like it more captures the willful act of humans to to go their own way. Like we didn't simply fall, which is kind of more of an outcome than an action. We we actively rebelled. 
And I think it it speaks into the human state today that yes, of course we are fallen and that is our kind of static state, but we're also constantly uh, tempted to rebel as well. So what do you guys think about that? Yeah, I like that a lot. And I think, you know, that also that word rebellion captures what's happened to the other major players in the story, which I've recently come to see as a bigger deal in the Bible than I used to. And that is the role of the powers, that they also are rebellious, you know, created beings meant to have some kind of role in the universe, which I think has been kind of underplayed in Christian theology, but they were rebellious to that. And apparently, given the beginning story of the Bible, they were influential in the rebellion of humans. And so I think it captures better what's going on in the world is this sense of working against God's will rather than just like falling off a ladder or something. Yeah, and I think, you know, what we see is then that this rebellion gets a foothold. It it becomes a stronghold and then ultimately becomes a stranglehold. They begin building cities and what we see, you know, pre the the Noah flood story is that the evil has, you know, propagated in just unbelievable ways. It's been compounded. It's become systemic. And um, God, true to his word, uh, these beings are autonomous. He doesn't stop, stop, step in and shut the, you know, um, shut people down. He allows them to continue in their rebellion. And the story becomes very difficult from there. Yeah, it's like he's actually opened up space in the universe for other people who have a will to be players in the drama. It's not that he's pulling strings and controlling the whole show. He's opened up space to limit his own involvement to some degree so that there can be other people, other, you know, personal beings that interact. And that's a risk. And that's what's happened in the world. Yep. Yep. Okay, so Glenn, tell us about Act 3. Yeah, so I think from, you know, those opening two acts tell us, like, this is the conflict that the story of the Bible has to overcome. It's set right from the beginning in the opening part of the story of the Bible. So what happens in the Bible is a set of ongoing steps by the Creator to reestablish what He intended at the world's outset. Those steps are primarily couched in terms of a series of covenant promises that He makes, moving the story forward in major ways. So you have a covenant with Noah about the earth. Abraham establishes Abraham and his family as the key players in the drama at this point. Um, With Moses, he makes a covenant with the larger family of Abraham, forms them into a nation, kind of be a light to the world, a display people, if you will. And then David, a member of that family, is chosen as a special king. And it's announced that, that David's Uh, family line will rule Israel and indeed the world forever. So there's there's a series of these covenant promises that kind of structure the overall story of the entire Bible. But it starts with this call to Abraham and specifically Act 3, which we call Israel's Quest, is the place where most of the story the Bible is concerned with. And it takes up a lot of space when you're reading the Bible. There's this great line that the, the rabbis had after the time of Christ where they had a commentary on Genesis, and they had God saying, well, I will make Adam first, and if he goes astray, then I will send Abraham to sort it all out, Hmm. which really gets at, I mean, I love that line, but 
it really gets at this fundamental structure of the Bible that that God's answer to the rebellion is to choose Abraham and his family as the means by which he will overcome the rebellion and set the story back on its proper track. I just think that's a beautiful way to think about Israel and how that works with the beginning of the story. God's answer to what's gone wrong in the world is to choose one man and his family and work through them to restore everything. So we come to the story of the Exodus, the decisive act of liberation that creates Israel and forms the pattern for God's future acts of salvation in the story. So what's beautiful about the Exodus event and why it's so big in the Bible, because all of its components will come to play a part later, and especially as we jump ahead to think about this, what, what Jesus did, for instance, it's a replay of the Exodus event for Israel. So here's what came from the Exodus. First of all, you had freedom from slavery, which was real and tangible slavery, and real and tangible freedom and liberation. So that was part of it. There's a social political side to Exodus. There are instructions for living. God is teaching his people how he wants them to live in the world. Um, he himself comes down to live with them on earth. So the tabernacle creates a place for God to be right in the midst of his people. There's provision for what it needs to live. There's life-giving bread, manna from heaven. There's a system of offerings and sacrifices that atone for sins so that God and people really can be reconciled. There's the gift of this long-promised land that God had promised way back to Abraham, and now he brings them into that land, and he fills it with his blessing. So all of this together is an attempt to recreate what God had with humanity in the Garden of Eden. I think it's important right off the bat to see that what the rabbi said is true that the story of Abraham and his family is an attempt to set right what had gone wrong in the Garden of Eden, and it's, and it's working to recreate those conditions. So that's a, a great and beautiful kind of entrance of Israel into the world. Of course, it didn't go well from that point on, because Israel struggled to live up to their end of the covenant agreement. Um, so God keeps working, and that's a beautiful thing, that he doesn't just shut it down like you said, Paul. He keeps working with humans because he's committed to them from the start. So he makes a covenant promise to David and makes him king and says, the line of rulers of Israel will always come from your family. But it's not enough to overcome what's wrong in Israel. So they just can't hold up their end of the covenant. So they, are, they persist in ignoring God's instructions and they pursue other false gods. Abraham's family was raised up to undo the downfall of Adam and Eve, but now they show that they suffer from the same disease of rebelliousness. This leaves the story with a double problem. Israel was meant to be God's solution to the world's problem, but now it has become a problem itself. So at this point, you know, at the end of the First Testament, we have a story in search of a proper ending. There's this long, convoluted, up and down story of Israel. But it's not doing the work that God wanted it to do in terms of addressing the fundamental problems of creation and rebellion. And so that's kind of where we're left at this point in the story of Israel. Yeah, that's interesting, Glenn. And, you know, at this point in the story of Israel, after all the prophets have come and gone too, we move into this period that uh, people oftentimes refer to as God's silence, you know, this 400 mm -hmm. period uh, named by scholars the intertestamental 
uh, period. And this is somewhat part of this big story, part of this drama mm-hmm. that God yeah. kind of walks off of the stage almost in, in a sense of frustration. And, you know, if we're going to live into the story, we've got to get used to the idea that this is a long redemptive story. And if we're always expecting quick fixes, we're going to be, you know, very disappointed. And, you know, later on, even in the Jesus story, uh, they expected their Messiah to come as a mighty warrior who would be like the rock that comes, you know, rolling down the mountain and crushes Daniel's, you know, statue and, you know, know, brings the nations under, you know, immediate rule of, uh, of, of God and righteousness. But instead, Jesus comes like a humble farmer. And he starts sowing seeds, and sometimes these seeds take centuries, you know, to germinate and sprout. Yeah, yeah, I've noticed that when I've read the through the Old Testament at times, where there are just these enormous stretches of time where nothing happens, and then the story picks back up. But it's like you know, four hundred years of <laughs> nothing really happening. I'm like, wow, the United States is what just over two hundred years old, like. 400 years is a long time. And, and that's, that's a significant uh, thing that there is these periods of silence. Yeah. The Bible, that, I mean, the Bible really is a long game, right? It's, it's yeah. not a short game. And I think we live in a course in an instantaneous age and we get frustrated when things take more than a few seconds when yeah. we want them to happen. And it's an adjustment for us to, to just kind of get into the mode, the framework, of the long time frame of stories within the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. But Glenn, I've heard you talk about this before. There are some underground things that take place during this period in terms Mm. of Israel progressing in their understanding of, you know, angels and things like that. Yeah, that's right. So it was this period of silence. I think that's right. Like it was understood within Israel that there's no more prophecy. There aren't prophets speaking at this time. That's why the books in Judaism that were written during this time are attributed to other people from the past. So the book of Baruch or Enoch, other big names from Israel's history, because they knew that God was not inspiring prophets in their own time. So when they wrote a book, they would do it under another author's name from the past to kind of give it some sense of legitimacy. So there's this sense of God's not working right now. So there was also with that, this rise of interest in the role of angels in the role of the powers. So you have a book like Daniel, you know, written um, way toward the end of the the First Testament, and you see that angels are assigned to nations, something we hadn't really heard about much before. And this the sense that there are dark spiritual powers that have kind of taken over the world in a sense. They're running the world, and that's why the New Testament will later use language like the the God of this age or the ruler of this world to describe the dark spiritual powers. And that rise really happened during this intertestamental period. So it's really important for setting the stage for how Israel was thinking about God and his relationship to Israel when we start the New Testament. So there there were important things that happened after the canonical Old Testament or First Testament ends. Yeah. Yeah. And I think before we hop into the New Testament, I also think it's, you know, just worth addressing that I think functionally, when when Christians tell a, a gospel message or a gospel story or the story of the Bible, the, if they kind of paraphrase it, a lot of times this Act Three, which is a 
what two thirds of the Bible or something like that is yeah, real story. Crazy, right? This gets left out entirely, right? Like there's creation, fall, Jesus, and it you know yeah, it's right. kind of this optional. Um, you know, you go to a a concert and there's like the opening bands before the real band that you <laughs> need. You know, comes onto stage and it. I feel yeah. like Israel in, in some ways gets treated kind of like that, aside from maybe some uh, isolated stories that have a moral lesson or something like that. But I think a lot of people just don't really know what to do with the Israel story. Yeah. And I think a lot of people think of the Bible structure as basically Old Testament, bad, wrong, legalistic, Judaism. New Testament says no to the Old Testament, right? It's old. That's why we use the word old. Right? Yeah. I like why I prefer the word first, which comes from the book of Hebrews for talking about the first part of the Bible. But the New Testament is just a complete repudiation of everything that happened in the Israel story. And it's just not true. Um, things went wrong in the Israel story. But Jesus and the rest of the New Testament are all working with categories and frameworks that come from the story of Israel. So if you don't know the story of Israel, you don't really understand Jesus and you don't understand the New Testament. Paul, Act 4. Okay, the story of the Bible, Act 4, is uh, the King's Advent. And, you know, at this juncture of the story, we uh, find the nation of Israel in a very familiar place, again, uh, being held captive to a foreign power. You know, first they're enslaved by Pharaoh and the Egyptians, taken into exile, second, you know, by the Babylonians, and now they're under the um, domination of the Romans. And hard for us to imagine what this is like, especially those that have grown up in a culture of freedom. But in every Israelite town, and especially in Jerusalem, you walk out your door every day and you encounter Roman soldiers, Roman tax booths, and Roman crosses erected in strategic places to remind you of what happens to insurrectionists. And, you know, it's really a deplorable state. The nation has never been more desperate. They've never been more helpless. And they had never hated Romans and Gentiles more. I think we need to, to say that. Uh, wow. and, and it's, uh, you know, it's into this cultural hotbed moment that Jesus kind of reappears <laughs> and steps back onto uh, to the stage. And in many ways, kind of a reenactment of Eden, where God comes daily, you know, to be with with Adam and Eve. And I, I think it speaks, you know, to God's predisposition to always wanting to be in relationship with his people. He's not just a God who's capricious and looking, you know, for his subjects to be, you know, obedient to him. He wants to be with us and for us uh, to be with him. And in this particular setting, you know, he realizes that the world is in desperate need of rescue and uh, restoration, and so he comes for that, even though it's uh, you know ultimately going to cost him his uh, his life. And you know, at age thirty, he begins kind of an itinerant preaching uh, mission. He's consistently telling people the kingdom of God has come. Uh, the four centuries of silence are over. God is back in action. He's back in the game, and this time he's come with skin on in the person of Jesus, and he's going to make some things right that have needed to be made right for a long time. The crowds are mesmerized by his preaching. They're even more mesmerized by his miracles. There is a 
fantastic following that he garners initially. Um, after generations of waiting for the Messiah, there's kind of a growing sense. Uh, there'd been many false messiahs that had risen up. Some of them that had actually uh, selected 12 disciples to follow them before. Jesus wasn't the first one mm -hmm. to select 12 disciples. <laughs> and, uh, you know, all of this is just, you know, signaling, you know, here's this one. He has all the credentials. He comes from the line of David. He's born where David was born in, in Bethlehem. And so maybe this is finally you know, the one. But um, <laughs> this is a real story. And it takes yeah. a very, um, let's call it what it is, an ugly twist. Mm -hmm. And uh, Jesus, instead of uh, avoiding Romans and Gentiles, as all good Jews were being taught to do, he begins actually hobnobbing with them. And he heals them. And it's very disturbing, the people that he heals. He goes out of his way to heal deaf, blind, crippled, leprous people people who the Jewish leaders believed had fallen out of favor with God. Hmm. They weren't allowed to come to the temple. And this is who Jesus targets. This is who he's to be with. And he's confrontational. He's uh, insulting at one point, And it's kind of like the ultimate insult. He tells them that this is the religious leaders, that the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going to get into the kingdom of heaven in front of them. It's just really, really amazing. Mm -hmm. And then he begins, yeah. you know, having yeah. meals, having meals with these deplorables. And it's the final coup de grace. He starts engaging in crazy talk, non-messianic talk about loving your enemies and doing good to those who oppress you. And there's three years that become increasingly controversial and contentious. Finally, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. And there's a, a moment of solidarity between the Pharisees, Sadducees, and the Romans. And Jesus is um, crucified on, on a Roman cross. And I don't think it's possible for us to, uh, living on this side of that, knowing the story, I don't think it's possible for us to comprehend the disappointment, the heartbreak of those who had pinned their hopes on Messiah Jesus. But the story turns again, without a doubt, the most dramatic turn in the whole Bible story, the primary hinge point on the third day after his um, execution, he rises from the dead. And the Romans spin conspiracy theories uh, that the disciples have stolen the body, but Jesus makes multiple appearances, including one occasion in front of a crowd of 500 people. There's no going back. And then the word begins to spread. And in the next act of the Bible's drama, we'll see how the Jesus story becomes legendary. And this small movement then begins to spread throughout the whole Roman world. Yeah. Hmm. Wow. Well, it's <laughs> like I said at the beginning, there's no way to possibly do justice to <laughs> any of these acts. But of course, in just a couple of minutes, you know, our commentary on this act, of course, will not do justice to the, the depth of what's going on here. But, you know, I, when I was thinking about this, this act in particular, I was just reflecting on my own experience and kind of what I just said about it, Israel's role in the story. I think that growing up, words like Christ and Messiah were just kind of like synonyms for Jesus. You could just kind of interchange them however you needed. And I didn't really understand that they were titles and they were um, Jewish titles and they 
came with a set of expectations and that a lot of people were upset with Jesus because he lived in the, into those expectations in a different way than they anticipated, I guess. So it's just such an interesting element of that story to me. Yeah, I think and related to that is, is that's kind of an example of a bigger point, and that is that the entire story of Jesus is a redo of the story of Israel, if you will. I think the theological word for that is recapitulation, but it basically just means that patterns in the story repeat themselves and that that whole acts are kind of done over again. And with Jesus, they're, he's doing the Israel story. It just comes out with a better ending this time. So he goes out into the wilderness and is tempted, just like Israel. He's tempted like Adam and Eve were. Uh, but this time he successfully defeats Satan in the temptation. So the 12 tribes related to the 12 disciples, it's the idea, like you mentioned, Paul, of being a kind of a renewal of Israel by choosing 12 new tribes. We're, we're making Israel over again. He goes down to the Jordan where Israel had crossed into the promised land in the first place. So the whole beginning of his ministry is just like an announcement. We're going to do Israel over again. This time it's going to be centered around me and it's going to have a different outcome. So God did not drop his intention to bring blessing to the world through Israel. Jesus has come to have Israel fulfill its own destiny in the story. So it's a big, big sense in which Act 4 um, is closely, intimately related to Act 3, which are attempting to solve the problems that came up in Acts 1 and 2. I think, you know, one of the overarching elements of this, you know, grand saga, we've called it a saga, um, is, is the element of surprise. And mm. Jesus works in unexpected ways. And there are assumptions in that day that the primary problem in the world is, is Rome and, uh, and Caesar, who has declared himself to be, to be a deity. And everybody is thinking in those terms, including Jesus' disciples throughout right. the entirety of his ministry, in spite of all of the parables that he tells to try right. to clarify things and so forth, they're still thinking in terms of if we could just deal with Rome, righteousness can be ushered in, and, you know, Israel can become, you know, on into eternity, you know, paradise that God, God intended. But Rome is not the uh, enemy, and in this big story, the enemy gets redefined and uh, military victory isn't over Rome, but there are deeper, darker powers at work and death and destruction and uh, principalities and powers. And these are the things that Jesus is dealing with, somewhat hidden from what all the expectations around him were. Yeah, so they always had an idea in Israel that the Messiah would be a king, of course, son of David, and he would come to fight. Israel's enemies. What you just said, Paul, is fascinating that Jesus redefined who the real enemy is. And it's not their usual physical enemy. It's the deeper powers that are disrupting all of humanity. That's, that's key to, I think, understanding the story of Jesus. All right. If you guys don't have anything else, we'll move on to, to Act oh, 5. Oh, we do have something else, but we don't have time. <laughs> we don't have nearly enough time for it. Right, right. Um, Cool. So Act 5 is what we're calling Communities Calling. And this is uh, the part of the, the Bible that takes place after the Gospels and after Jesus, um, where the, the decisive victory over the evil powers has been won. 
And suddenly all of the followers of Jesus are confronted with the implications of this crazy new reality um, for the entire world. So, so the gospels have this um, journey sort of uh, framework, I guess, you know, Jesus is journeying towards Jerusalem, the center of Jewish life to do battle with these powers. And, and that's where, where he does battle on the cross in the most unexpected and, and crazy way. Um, but then the remainder of the new Testament talks about how this, the, the victory, the news of this victory spreads out from Jerusalem towards, towards the Gentiles, towards the end of the earth. And, you know, the new Testament is about the community that, that takes this message forward forward. It's a community based in the past work, but also the present ongoing work of, of the new King of, of Jesus. Um, and their central claim is that Jesus is the true Lord and the true authority over all of creation. So, you know, after the gospels, you jump into acts talks about the earliest apostles, including the apostle Paul, who is, you know, arguably one of the quote unquote main characters of the new Testament. Obviously his letters make up the bulk of the new Testament and Paul's this Pharisee of Pharisees, like the most Jewish dude of all time, you know, and he's confronted <laughs> with the reality that, um, you know, Jesus is this new culmination of the Jewish story and the Israelite story. And he has a lot of work to do to work out how <laughs> Jesus's life and death and resurre resurrection and, and everything that he did um, fits into God's promises that were, were given throughout Israel's story. So as far as it goes for Christians today, you know, if we were at the the zoo or the theme park or whatever, this is where the big red, you are here circle <laughs> would be, you know, where we are here currently in, in the story of the Bible and, and the church of Christ is still in this, um, kind of in between time where, where our sp spirit filled communities are still tasked with spreading the good news of, of Jesus's victory and Jesus's Lordship. And, and we're still expected to operate within the upside down kingdom ethic of Jesus. You know, we're not, we're not tasked with spreading this good news through, uh, force and through power as the world understands it, you know, through military might or anything like that, but instead through, uh, the ethic of Jesus of humility, forgiveness, suffering, devotion, servitude, etc. And, um, you know, I think also one, one last thing is that one of the surprises of the New Testament is the timeline of God acting. You know, I think there was this Jewish assumption that the Messiah would immediately come and they had this idea of the kind of two ages, I guess, the present evil age and then the age to come. And they thought, you know, the Messiah would come and it'd be like a flick of a light switch. We'd, we'd transition from this time of chaos and disorder and rebellion to God's kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. Um, and instead we're kind of confronted with, instead of a light switch analogy, it's more like a Venn diagram. So there's, there's this overlapping space in the middle, uh, which is where the two ages coexist. Some people have called it the, the already and the not yet. And that's where we are today. Yeah. Wow. That's intense, Alex. And it's, uh, it's just amazing when you really think about how the story of the new community just flows from the story of Jesus and contains all the same kind of surprises, which I think is hard for Christians to grasp that 
um, you know, the victory of Christians today has to look like the victory of Jesus, which was not violent. It was not coercion. It was the power of self-sacrificing love, as you mentioned. And I think that's our identity. So this act of the story, right, if we read it in the scriptures and get our bearings right, figure out where we are, as you mentioned, that's that's illuminating for who we are supposed to be in the world right now. Yeah, I think there are some, you know, really interesting parallels to, you know, our world today and and this age that you've described, Alex, is a, a new age and again, a surprising age. Jesus leaves again, in a sense, but mm. he promises his followers that he's going to be there. The spirit of Christ is going to be there, but it's going to be um, hidden within believers and within his church, and it will continue to work. But again, it kind of works in a quiet, unassuming way and we live we live in the middle of that but you know it is sobering that some of the very things that Paul then had to grapple with in terms of helping this next generation understand that God has opened this thing wide open it's not just for Jews anymore it's going to be for Jews and Gentiles and we cannot i think really understand the animosity that ex- still existed between those two groups, maybe stronger than, you know, black and white animosity. It might be Arab and European, you know, animosity would be a better picture. But that is what we've been called into. And we've been called to put that tribalism away and to experience a new kind of unity and a new kind of love that I think, you know, in many ways, we're still just kind of scratching the surface of. Yeah, yeah, so it's wor- worth mentioning that this is the act that completes what was promised back in, in the Genesis kind of foundation of the story, right? Where Abraham's call is the answer to, sorry for the word, Adam's fall or rebellion, right? Because this is, he was called to be God's answer to what's gone wrong in the world. And in this act five is when we get back to a Jewish blessing, the Jewish Messiah being the means of blessing for all the world. So this is this is really, really crucial to the overall storyline of the Bible. It's where that promise about Israel's vocation is made good. So much to unpack here, but Glenn, you got to bring us home. Act 6. Yeah. Okay. Act 6 in the Bible story, God's homecoming. I think that, you know, if the beginning of the, the Bible story was God pushing back the powers of chaos and disorder at the creation, create a place of beauty, goodness, flourishing life, then I love how the Bible kind of bookends that with a return to that vision at the end of the story. Um, Jesus was the decisive moment when the powers and evil and sin and death were defeated, but that all has to be worked out in history into reality. And as you mentioned, we're living between the ages. It's at the return of Jesus, at the end of the story, that all of this is finally done in completion. It's kind of like the the story in the Lord of the Rings when after Sauron is defeated, they still have to go back to the Shire and cleanse it from the evil that has overtaken that space. And that's kind of where we are in the story. Um, So the finale of this story still lies ahead of us, and the victory of Jesus will be completely implemented. His own personal return the final destruction of evil, resurrection, which is, I think, 
too often ignored by God's people when we think about the future. We think about dying and going to heaven. Uh, the Bible's vision is a fully embodied resurrection in the midst of a new creation. And we need to learn to adopt biblical language, I think, for the end game that God has in mind in the Bible story, the new heaven and a new earth, not just heaven. It's a renewed creation. It's resurrected people. And I think another element here that is um, kind of not often brought up, but N.T. Wright makes a big deal out of it in his book on the atonement, and that is that human vocation is renewed. That is, hmm. we're going to live in a world where God intended us to be his image bearers in his creation temple, and we will take up that task again. So there will be culture making. I mean, we will be spirit filled, God worshiping, culture making image bearers in God's newly remade creation. So it's not just, you know, like some people, the caricature of sitting on a cloud and playing a harp. We're back in the world. It's this world. It's this life without the sin, the brokenness, the death. And it's everything God ever wanted it to be. And it's a, a beautiful thing. No longer just a garden because history has moved on and culture has happened. But now it's a city. So it's connected to the Garden of Eden. There's a tree of life in this new city, um, but it is a city, meaning humans will continue to contribute to what the world becomes. And that's what it means to have a creator God who's not static, but once the world in partnership um, with us, God is in partnering with us to make the world into new things. And that's that's a beautiful closing vision, I think, of the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. So powerful. and. So uh, kind of not the the Christ, normal Christian cultural view, I think, for the last who knows how many hundred years or whatever. Like it has always been kind of an escape to the clouds sort of thing. Leave this world behind. Um, but but it just reinforces that God's not abandoning what he termed in the beginning is a very good thing. It just needs to get fixed. Yep, exactly. So. Yeah, I think it's it's a neat ending to the story of the Bible that, um, again, we need to take our cues from the Bible itself and not just Christian cultural tradition, kind of like what we said about the Christmas story uh, a month ago. You know, we take our cues from Christian tradition sometimes more than the text of the Bible. And I think with the ending of the story in Act 6, we need to take our cues from what the Bible actually says about that, not always what the Christian tradition has said about that. Yeah. and I'm. I'm probably walking into a minefield here, but just to get a little bit specific on Act 6, you know, it, it takes place in the book of Revelation, and <laughs> Revelation's a weird book. Um, and I think it's been helpful for me. I'm, I'm by no means a Revelation expert, but, you know, a, a, a good portion of it is a commentary on current events when, when the book was written in the first century, right? Like, right, exactly. it's not, you know... Act six isn't the entirety of Revelation where it's predicting all of these uh, events of the future. It's kind of a blend of commentary on on current events at that time, but also prediction of future events. Is that on track? Yeah, I think that's right. It was written to persecuted Christians in Asia Minor who were needed a, a visual apocalyptic picture of what was actually happening in heaven that related to their experience on earth. That's exactly what Revelation does. But then it gives them a vision of the hope for the future. And, you know, it's a symbolic book. So it's wrong to take its symbols as literal things like streets of gold and gates of pearl. 
but it does give us a vision of the shape of God's future. And you can see the major contours of that. And Revelation, that's why it's such a gorgeous end to the story of the Bible, because it presents this this beautiful, emotional, powerful imagery that helped us grasp not the literal details, but the great big ideas that are the heart of God's future. Living with us, new heaven, new earth, no more crying, mourning, pain, the destruction of evil, right? Those are the things we need to live by. Yeah, I think, you know, as we we wrap this up, there's part of the purpose for rushing through, in a way, these six acts is for us to begin to comprehend the real value of seeing the Bible story through through this lens and through seeing this big story. And if if we can get this, you know, into our hearts and minds, it can be a very powerful agent in our lives. Because the reality is, is that, you know, our own personal stories from time to time are dark and mm. they lack hope and they're chaotic and they're sad and there's death and there's brokenness and, you know, all, all of those things. And then, it, of course, it sometimes our, our stories soar as well. But all of that, if, if people can continue to latch on to the idea that there is this big story, it is moving forward. And Glenn, as you've said many times, it's a story that gets brighter and brighter and brighter until the final end. And so it's, it's a source of, of hope for us in these, mm. uh, in these days. Yep. Amen. Indeed. Well, we know, we know this episode was longer than our usual episode. And, uh, if, if it didn't feel like a, a fire hose of information and, and ideas, then, uh, you've certainly got more brain power than I do. But like we said at the beginning, we really wanted to try to give you a bird's eye view of the entire narrative from start to finish in, in one episode. And, there's this great line in The Princess Bride where uh, he's trying to quickly explain something and he says, you know, I'll explain. Wait, no, it's too much. I'll sum up. And and I feel like that's kind of what we were trying to do today a little bit. I mean, it's, you know, right. it's a long, winding, uh, deep story. But, um, you know, really, we wanted to try to sum it up. And hopefully this got the wheels turning in your head and got you asking some more questions. There's a whole lot of great books on, on various elements of this or, um, or some books that, that lay out the drama in six acts like we tried to do today. So I'll link to those in the description if you want to read up on it some more. And, uh, just a heads up that we've, we've also added a new feature on our podcast website in the form of a contact form. So if you've got questions, comments, feedback, et cetera, on, on this episode or any others, we'd love to hear from you. So you can find that at thebiblereset.com and you can scroll down to the bottom of the page and, uh, and send us your questions. I think that's going to do it for this episode. I think we're all worn out, but <laughs> hopefully this was a helpful, uh, helpful bit of content for you guys. Thank you so much for tuning in and we'll see you on the next one. 